This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hi there, I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We have got some great experts for you. We were in conversation with a marketer, a strategist, an author, as we talked about the pressure that so many parents in the region find themselves under. But where does that come from and what can brands do to combat it? A new survey was very revealing indeed. Indeed, We were talking to Alia Raja, a professional and personal coach, about how to stop being such a people pleaser. Doormats, this one's for you. Rania Husson is a mindful parent educator, a mum of five, and she was sharing her tips on what she calls personalised parenting. Finding out more about prostate cancer, marking Movember with Dr. Rizwan from King's College Hospital, and Dr. Thraya explaining what a healthy relationship looks like and how to future-proof yours. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Do you feel the pressure to be a perfect parent? If you do, you are definitely not alone because a recent study with 28,000 Arab mothers found that 87% of them felt that pressure to be the quote-unquote perfect mother. And 90% of them blaming social media. So where do you think that pressure comes from? We'd love to hear from you. You can be anonymous if you prefer. And one of the men behind that study, Ahmed Abu Zanad, is with us, author, strategist, and the founder of advisory firm Native. He's in the studio to unpick this data, give his take as a, well, not a parent, which I find really interesting. So I feel like that distance is actually incredibly valuable. Ahmed, tell us a little bit about why this study came about in the first place. Yeah, so not being a parent myself, but part of the job I do is being a student of uh, human behavior because we work with uh, brands, uh, helping them strategize so that they can uh, target their audiences, but more importantly, identify these tensions and play a more meaningful role in in, in people's lives Mm -hmm. beyond selling products, beyond pushing products down down their uh, throats and whenever we work with a brand that is targeting mothers and we try to unearth these insights these tension points uh, starting i would say eight years ago this what i'd like to call the fear of underparenting keeps gets coming oh, up the fear of underparenting that yeah. that might be the name of my memoir <laughs> So, you know how FOMO became so popular, yeah. the fear of missing out. And I'm like, okay, I'd like to call it FOP and I'd like it to just, you know, pick up. So I'm here and I'm hoping it will get as popular. So 28,000 mothers responding to, to this survey. And as I said, the vast majority of them feeling like they've got this pressure to be the perfect mum and dad. I mean, I feel that pressure yes. all the time. And I'm not sure where it comes from. I think maybe partly my own family, maybe myself. Yeah certainly social media, advertising, social constructs. You know, where do you feel like, what were they saying that perhaps... Yes. So part of the question was, did you feel that an older generation, your mom, did did she feel the same pressure? And the majority said, no, it's it's just, it's it's recent. And it it starts with, what's interesting, it starts with the term parenting. So the term parenting was introduced to the dictionary in the early, I would say, 20th century. And it became so popular only in the 70s when thinkers, authors, and journalists wanted to make a big deal out of it. So the, the issue started there, which is the influx of information and the conflicting information. And it started in the 70s. And then the internet came about and everyone has an opinion on the internet. So today, if you go on Amazon and you search for a book on parenting, Imagine how many results you get. You get 60,000 uh, books. Oh, what? I mean, if, and then and then they'll be like, you might also like this white noise machine to help your child sleep. Exactly. <laughs> and this is Amazon. It's books. Try Googling it. Google blogs on parenting. Can you guess how much, how many results? Thir- 31 million, 500,000. So I know you so have one of those blogs. Yeah, it's yeah, one, yeah. one of the better ones I'd like to add. <laughs> yeah. no, but I feel like that point of comparison in previous generations is so key because yes. I'm sure my mum, you know, she would look around her friendship group and she would ask them for advice. She would say, oh, you know, how's, how's Deborah coping with, you know, the, the, the sleepless nights or how's, you know, Sue disciplining her children? Whereas now we've got 
endless people yes. to compare ourselves to. Yes, Th- that's that's one thing. So the, the the kind of advice you get from people close to you who have been through this uh, before, it comes with you know no agendas. Mm-hmm. If I have a blog and I want to promote that blog, this is the agenda. If I'm an influencer and I want to promote and get more followers, this uh, that's the agenda. And the other agenda of influencers is to eventually sell products Absolutely. Th- through their influence. And then presumably, as you said, working with brands, are they looking to, this is very cynical, um, exploit our insecurities, you know, by thinking, okay, they're worried about not feeding their children well. So this is the image that we're going to present and we're going to hope that they think our product is the answer to them being the perfect parent. Yeah, it's when it comes to brands, it starts with short-sightedness that they just want to push the product. They don't mm. want to play a bigger role for for the brand to build that kind of connection. That's that's one one part of the issue. The second issue is marketers are growingly becoming more detached from their consumers. So they they have so, so they have a vast vast uh, resources and sources of data on their consumers. But this data is mostly their media consumption, you know, the websites they've been on, what did they buy before? So they they assume that they can draw this image of their consumers, but they only know them as consumers, as shoppers, as online shoppers. They don't know the, you know, the human instincts that lies beneath. And because they are so detached, they are creating ads that mothers are not relating to. Mm-hmm. So another study showed that 82% of Arab mothers don't see themselves in the ads they watch. They see their mothers. They see the grandmother. So this is how detached marketers are becoming from Arab mothers. So that's interesting then. Tell us a little bit about where you would like this to change, I guess. And do you think that could ultimately affect the bottom line for a lot of companies if they were a lot more real and they did tap into the very real struggles, but also celebrations, the good and the bad of parenthood? Yes. So it, it, it comes at two fronts. One is the brand itself. It needs to have a higher purpose and play a more valuable role, mm-hmm. which is to resolve the tensions that a mother will go through. And this takes, you know, genuine, authentic effort to really understand these tensions. And then the content that they come out with. And that's that's what we do at Native is to ensure that a brand is native and native means the role is native to her life, but the content has a native fit within the ecosystem where she encounters that content at the right time, at the right uh, at the right place. I can tell you the right time for an exhausted parent is, well, 3 a.m. And you know what? There, there have been studies into this about um, automated mail outs for companies, for retailers going, if you email them between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m., chances are they're feeling vulnerable, they're feeling tired. This is going to be seen as either a solution to sleepless nights or lack of time or looking and feeling better. Yes. And it's a quick click. Yes. <laughs> we, we've got a lot more judgment during during the waking hours. Yeah. And, and uh, adding to this, you know, it's we, we always try to tell brands that people don't really buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And if you really reveal that why, that you're really trying to resolve attention, mm-hmm. then, you know, they, they, they buy into you before they buy your product. So stop being short-sighted and just pushing the product and try to take a step back and identify this higher purpose. Lovely message from Alison here saying, yours is one of the few mum accounts that I read. Thank you. As it's honest and down to earth rather than unrealistic life that so, so few can maintain or even aspire to. I'm so done with fake lives on social media and your posts generate honest discussions and solutions. Thank you. That honestly means a lot to me because I just said to you off air, I started writing about parenting when my daughter was about six months old and, Mm. you know, having kids in Dubai can feel really fraught. You know, you've got a lot of people with a lot of money. You've got people spending 5,000 dirhams on baby Dior dresses and I was like, that is not me. What is there for me and people like me? And I'm so happy to have that message, honestly, because I feel like it can, when you are not real, it doesn't serve anybody. Yes. You're not living your authentic life. People look at you and think, oh, how does she do that? Without saying, you know, I have a nanny. I've got a supportive husband. You know, all of these things behind yeah. the scenes because it doesn't suit the image that you're trying to portray. So I think what you're doing is, is, is great and we need more mothers to do what you're doing because, you know, in all other aspects of life, if we talk FOMO versus FOP, you know, <laughs> FOMO is, yeah, 
a, a sense a, attention you know an anxiety that uh, my social life is not active enough but it doesn't go down into my identity you know mm-hmm. because okay I should be more socially active that's 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 no problem it's a small anxiety but when it comes to motherhood that's that oh, it, 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 it hits within the identity mm-hmm. so I am you know at ease not being the most social but no mother can be at ease feeling inadequate as a, as, a, as a mother. So when you do that and you hit that anxiety around mothers, it's so personal, it's so instinctive mm-hmm. that it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's more real. But, okay, you can post content on social media where it's too perfect, it's too flashy and all of that, but the anxieties you're creating is something people can live with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a weekend where I was at home and everyone f- had had a blast. Okay, I'll get over it. You know, next weekend I'll, I'll, I'll uh, compensate for that. But motherhood, it's day in, day out, it's, hour in, hour out. And it's you, visceral. Yes. It really, really is. So it's really interesting to think that how brands are looking to identify some of those pain points with parents. And I really hope that we might see a bit of a shift in the future because, yeah, if I have to go out to see one beaming parent producing the most incredible meal to their beaming child that just eats it. I'm, plates will be smashed, Ahmed. Thank you yeah. so, so much for your time thank you, today. Thank you. Thanks really, that. really interesting to hear what happens behind the scenes when it comes to marketing and research. So, yes, if you are one of the 87% of the mums who don't feel like... Yeah, you are the perfect parent. You are far from alone. Thank you for joining us from Native Ahmad Abuzanad, author, strategist, and the founder of that advisory firm. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. So, people pleasers are known for doing whatever it takes sometimes to make other people happy. While being kind and helpful is generally a good thing, and I do not want to start off by saying don't be kind don't be helpful but sometimes going too far to please others can leave you feeling emotionally depleted stressed anxious Alia Raja is with us today a personal and professional development coach the founder of coaching with Alia she's worked with CEOs public figures celebrities professors lawyers all sorts across the UA and beyond and also does training sessions like of Adnock Ministry of Education First Abu Dhabi Bank and she does have particular expertise with women who are looking to overcome issues in the workplace. And we're going to talk a little bit about boundaries as well. She also got her own podcast called The Women Who Flourish. Alia, what, do you, what does it mean to you, I suppose, to be a people pleaser? How do you define it? Yeah, well, I think it's, I really love that you touched on the fact that like we should still be kind, we should Definitely. still be good. Yeah, we're not saying, you know, don't be a good person, don't help others, 100%. But um, being a people pleaser really is about like, feeling that need to it's going over and beyond to help others at the expense of your own needs mm-hmm. um, and doing it from a place of needing to be liked wanting to be seen as nice so that's it when you feel like you're going over and beyond all the time I need this person to like me I can't say no that is all these things come under the term of people pleaser can you give us some examples something that you maybe you've come across in terms of your personal coaching or even in, in your own life if you are a bit of a people pleaser Alia confession time <laughs> <laughs> it, it is something that I've worked on for sure me yeah, too. I mean, I, I was someone who I fell into the trap of I, I wanted to be seen as, as nice. I wanted people to think, oh, she's so nice. She's so nice. And I didn't people I didn't want people to think otherwise. And so as a result, I like wouldn't speak up. And that is one of the traits like when, you know, something is uncomfortable or you want to say no to something or maybe someone is kind of testing you and pushing your boundaries or making you feel uncomfortable, even disrespecting you. And you don't speak up because you don't want to, you know, kind of shake things up a bit. Um, it could be also, you know, someone is is asking you, can you do this for me? Or expecting to have your time a lot of the time. That's another thing where people just have that expectation because mm-hmm. you allow them to just keep taking up your time, keep calling you, keep dumping on you, and you never set that boundary. Where do you think it comes from, this need to people, please? So if we go back really back to like evolution, you know, back to our, you know, the hunter days, um, you know, we... As people, we wanted we wanted to be you know as part of something. It's very important for us even now, like to but survival, be, isn't it? Safety in yeah. numbers. We're De- social creatures. Definitely being part of something. Otherwise, if we didn't, we wouldn't survive. So always being part of something. But it, but there's a difference. Some people feel that need more than others to still be have that validation, um, feel valued, be appreciated by others, and it can come from like our childhood. It comes from you know our caregivers, and and so for example, if you were someone who um, had a caregiver who was you know quite controlling or, or critical or maybe emotionally distant, and as a child you felt that you needed to really try hard 
child or really prove yourself to get that validation or, or be seen by a parent. Uh, maybe there's a lot of conflict to home. And so, you know, you wanted to, to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, you have that in you that I just want to keep the peace. I don't want to bring, have any conflict. Alia Raja is with us this afternoon. If you feel like you are prone to being a people pleaser, it's maybe something you want to move away from. Maybe this is ringing some alarm bells. Do get in touch. I've had a number of questions and messages on this. 4001. You can use your ARN Play app and the Dubai I, um, app as well, of course. Uh, 04871 You can leave your name off if you uh, if you prefer. So let's talk a little bit about the down- downsides to being a bit of a doormat, for want of a better phrase. I mentioned that it can leave you feeling depleted guilt I think that's something I struggled with or still struggle with a lot when I'm saying no or I know I'm going to disappoint somebody yeah uh, feelings of guilt um, because and the feelings of guilt really come from feeling responsible for that other person's emotions so if we say no it's like I feel guilty um, you know I, I'm feeling bad that I've upset them so you know that guilt that builds up over time um, you know if you're overly giving over and beyond that makes you feel exhausted as you said depleted over time and if if the and you've got to look at the dynamic if it's always you who's giving 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 and that other person is taking which can be a likely scenario that you find yourself it in it can be because i think human nature if you can get away with take take taking and you're not coming up against conflict you're probably going to continue down that path and that dynamic. But here's my question, though. What happens if you recognize this and you want to change your behavior? Surely that's going to have an impact on some of the relationships and dynamics because they're going to go, well, she didn't do that before. Yeah. He's always agreed to that. Yeah, and you can, exactly, you can end up becoming quite resentful towards people. And this is the thing. It's like something I see in my coaching work is that people can end up falling into the trap of going from one extreme to the other, right? It builds up so much, so much, so much to the point where you're like, you know what, forget this. I've done so much for people. I'm not getting in anything in return. I'm just going to like not, you know, do anything for them anymore. And then like you said, people are like, what, wait, what? Where mm-hmm. did you go? What's happened? So, um, yeah, you can end up feeling quite, you know, resentful towards people. Um, you know, bring, it brings up stress, you know, anxiety. If you're constantly having to try and prove yourself to people, not get anything, anything back or that validation, it can make you feel very anxious. I'm going to talk next about setting some boundaries. Um, we're going to get the text line first. And Nicola said, I hit 40 and suddenly realized I didn't care what people thought of me anymore. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for that. So it's getting older is... <laughs> is awful in so many ways, but that is one silver lining. Uh, G's got a message on, well, tips to say no, to be honest. And I'm going to be asking Alia, is no a complete sentence? That's next here on Dubai I 103.8. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Joining us live in the studio this afternoon is Alia Raja. She's a personal and professional development coach, founder of Coaching with Alia. And we're talking people pleasing. Is this something that you suspect might be setting you back emotionally? Practically, it takes a lot of time to be a people pleaser. Um, we're going to go to the text line in just a minute. So if you do have any questions, this is your chance for 001. Maybe you are a reformed people pleaser. I'd love to hear about your, your road to recovery. You can be anonymous as well. You've got your ARN Play app and their WhatsApp tip 04871 Now, something I've... The, just You know how sometimes you just get the same quote popping up again and again? Mm. I have had this quote and then a book called No is a Complete Sentence. Now, being British, <laughs> this, this, this makes me somewhat anxious. The, I, I'm guessing the idea behind it is, well, let's role play. Um, Helen, um, can you, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to try and not get in trouble with my boss. Can you please broadcast from the moon um, on, uh, on next week when it's your daughter's birthday? And I would say, no. No, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I'd be like, I'm so sorry. It's just not possible because here's 15 reasons. And please still like me. Um, do you think no is a complete sentence? It should be. How great would that be? How amazing. How much easier would life be if you could just be like, mm, no. no. And then they're like, okay, cool. Yep. <laughs> no, it's like, uh, I hear what you've just said. So let's talk about setting boundaries, Alia. What, what, what do you tend to recommend with people who might be struggling in this area? Because we don't want to be, you know, blowing up relationships and, you know, our professional careers. You know, we want to still maintain politeness and kindness, but also be kind to ourselves at the same time. Sure. 
Well, first of all, you need to recognize when you need to set a boundary. Um, and that really comes from like looking inwards and asking yourself questions about like, okay, well, how do I feel about this situation? Because we need to first identify if something is making us feel uncomfortable or if someone is kind of pushing our boundaries right now. So it's having first identifying that. Um, and, you know, what people find really hard about setting boundaries is I see this from the work that I do is they, they think that they've got to go from one extreme, which is being very like passive and saying yes, yes to everything to going to the other extreme, which is very aggressive or just like, nope, or shutting someone down or ignoring them completely. And it doesn't have to be like that. There can be a very, very nice middle ground. Um, And the way I like to see it is you can focus on saying no or what helps you to make it easier is actually think, well, how can I say yes to myself? So instead of saying no to other people, how can I say yes to myself? So in this situation, what do I need right now? So you have an invitation, for example, and it's like, well, actually, tonight, I'm actually really exhausted, or I need to spend time with my family, or actually, I've got to prioritize these deadlines right now. So saying yes to myself right now would be putting this on pause or having the conversation to say, actually, um, can I push or when do I need to... Uh, meet the deadline or can we push it you know so I think I think that's a really good distinction to make because I think a lot of us think about boundaries being walls and they're not you know boundaries are sometimes where people or you know ideas meet and that kind of communication is is often really really important sometimes it's communication with someone else and sometimes it's communication with yourself and like you know how does this request make me feel am I feeling compromised are people asking me to spend above my means you know or whatever that situation might be and the right people who do really love and respect you whether that's you know personally or professionally will continue to respect you I hope um, we've got time for one quick text this is from G saying thank you both for this I want to be more assertive in my life e.g. only doing things that interest me and saying no to, th- no to those who don't I'm getting a bit better at saying no but then ruminate and dwell and think they probably won't like me anymore any tips welcome mm-hmm. common yeah so this is uh, this is kind of a hard one. It's kind of a hard pill to swallow. But if you feel like that, if you feel like the people in your life might not like you anymore because you've decided to say no to something, then what? How strong are those relationships? How strong are those you know bonds? Because the only way really to have strong and authentic relationships is by being authentic yourself. You know, if you're constantly putting on like a front to other people or being agreeable or being the person that you think that you should be for everyone to make them happy, you're not showing the true you, and then you're not really forming you know real connections and friendships and relationships. So um, if you're you know doing everything to say no in a nice way, in a polite way, honoring yourself and your needs and not having to exhaust yourself to have those friendships if those people don't resonate with that and they're not respectful of that then you might have to kind of reconsider you know their place in your life I like a good friendship edit declutter Ali for anyone that wants to work with you either personally or professionally you're working as, as we said with corporations with teams what's the best way of getting in touch with you yeah so um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn Ali Araja or you can follow me on Instagram coach underscore Alia and it's got all my links uh, there as well you're a star thank you so so much I do appreciate your time and you and uh, we'll definitely have more chats in the future and thank you for everyone who's been in touch on this topic Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer talking parenting this afternoon because very excitingly on Thursday we are heading along to Parenthood the Unconference the lineup is absolutely incredible including our next guest Rani Husson is a mindful parent educator a life coach a former teacher and a mother of five and she's going to be at Parenthood the Unconference on Friday discussing the importance of what she calls personalised parenting offering up some advice but we're picking her brains right now <laughs> Rani lovely to have you with us before we talk parenting. I want to know what's playing in your car. Five children. How are you pleasing them all? <laughs> now, actually, we follow what the uh, teenagers want. So we listen to Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> My kids are really into looking at the songs that have got the E for explicit because they want to listen to the swear word. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am, what am I doing as a parent? That's a conversation for off air. Okay. See where I'm going wrong here. <laughs> now, you have said that parenting is personal, not prescriptive. What do you mean by that, Rania? Yeah, that's uh, the main idea of my talk, personalized parenting. Um, and the idea of having it personal 
um, is that it's not a pres- prescription. It's not like one size fits it all. Or one book fits it or all. Or one big book fits it all for the uh, for the whole children. And so like when we have, um, what do we call it, like um, uh, bacteria infection, okay, they give antibiotics, no matter what the bacteria is. But it doesn't work like that way uh, in parenting. Um, so when we come from a mindful approach and we understand where my child is coming from, um, I can see their assets, their talents, their weaknesses, and work from there instead of imposing things on them Mm -hmm. and instead of applying just blindly the advice that I've heard here and there. It's so hard, though, because so much of what we believe and do as parents comes from our parents because we grew up not really questioning that. You know, to my mind, my mum's a great mum and, yeah. you know, she, she did everything great. But then you start looking at, you know, studies into brain development or, you know, gentle parenting and discipline. And I think, oh, my gosh, you know, there was some serious boomer parenting going on back in the mid 80s. So how can we unlearn some of the things that might not serve our children today? Yeah, I, I always say that the past generations did a wonderful job with the things that they had. And we are trying also to do a wonderful job with, with, with the things that we have. Luckily, we have these MRI scans informing us about the development of the brain and how we can communicate with our children accordingly. Mm-hmm. So when I know that my 17-year-old is still not mature because his brain will fully mature at the age of 25, I will definitely approach him in a different way. Can I ask then about parenting styles? Because as I said, sometimes it comes from what we, the lens you know, that we have from growing up. Sometimes it's what we choose to engage with, with you know, friends and social media and mm-hmm. studies. But what if you and your partner have very different parenting styles? I love this question and not to shock you, but we all are different because I come with a different baggage. I was raised differently. He comes from a different background. We might share and we might not share the same values and principles, by the way, and we might do that. But when I, uh, there is an open communication with between me and him um, and he, we are, after all, we are investing in our children's best things and to give them you know kids first exactly so we can talk about this honestly uh, and say like what is it that I need to change let's take the good things from his side and the good things from my side or if there's no communication open because it happens um, eventually the partner will see that oh your your way is working so he would like to tag along and not to be different Mm It, it sometimes works that way. It's hard because there needs to be this kind of self-awareness ar- around how you parent and how your partner parents. But what I find really, str- really a genuine struggle is that we're all so busy. Mm. I would love to be a gentle parent and have these conversations about, you know, what are you feeling in the moment? But often I just need them to get to school. I just need or I need them to not be in my bed at 5.15 and I need them to just do what I need them to do to get that. So how can we be mindful parents in a manic world? Mm. It's a practice. It's, it's something that starts with us looking on the inside and working on these things and understanding where my triggers are. Mm, this is really interesting because things that trigger my husband, I'm like, why is that mm-hmm. bothering you? For you, it's not triggering. But for him, yes, yeah. that's what we bring with us. So when I understand these triggers, I can say, okay, instead of me behaving in this way, next time when this happens, I will try this side, Mm -hmm. you know. So there's no like one plus one equals two. It's a trial and error. And it's okay. We will make mistakes. And is it okay to have a different parenting style for your different children? Yeah. Because they're different anyway. But oh, I feel like it's a full-time job. It's, it is. It, it is. Nobody said it's easy. It's, it's, it's a, it is a serious job. Um, mm. But how about strengthening bonds, creating that mm. secure attachment, whether it's with a toddler or indeed a teen? Yeah, I believe it starts with day one. Um, so when a baby cries, we tend to the child, feed him. And then as they grow up, we start connecting with them, playing with them, spending some time with them. We cannot do this all the time, just specifying specific moments during the day to do that. And this communication happens when we make the child um, feel that he's heard, he's, he's soothed, he's seen for who he is. And then this, we go back to the personalized parenting. Mm. I know where you're coming from and I meet you there. Um, yeah. And what are some of the big challenges then that people are coming to you with Rania as a, as a parenting educator? Normalize how we're all feeling as parents. Yeah. What, what are people struggling with right now? Um, mostly communicating their ideas. Like sometimes when there's a struggle, they order their kids and then the child will just 
uh, stand his ground. They, there will be no cooperation. So communication skills. Can we can we can we have an example of this, please? Uh, because yes. I'm just trying to think. Because this this is comes back to what I was saying before. I, I Sometimes give, I just need you to make your bed because that's part of being in our family. And you do it. And the more I'm, you're, I've said this to you. I've said it four times now. I'm getting more angry the yeah. more I have to ask you. And I don't know how to get you to do this without shouting. And I don't want to be that parent. Yeah, Help us. Okay. In my course, I offer certain strategies. One of them is the I message. So you describe what you see. You you just state it. Without... So I, can say, I can see, Tabitha, you haven't made your bed. So or, <laughs> or I would tell you, when you don't uh, fix your bed, I feel what the, whatever it makes you feel. And this costs me so and so. And because kids, they want to please us, they will do it. And the approach is soft. Now, yes, of course, it doesn't happen 100% all the time. We need to be realistic. But when 80% of our time, we are able to build this connection, the 20% is okay. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead then to Friday, we're going to be mm. there at the Etat Arena on Yas Island. I said we're going to be there at Parent of the Young Conference on Thursday. The lineup is amazing. Yeah. It's not too late to come along. There's going to be incredible keynotes. So brilliant speakers, including Rani Hussain as well. Um, what can we look forward to from your session on Friday afternoon? Um, maybe a few tips and um, applicable, practical Thank things you. that pa- parents can do. And your mentor is going to be there at the conference yeah. as well. Yeah, Hunter Clarksfield. So please yeah. don't hesitate to uh, get in touch if you want the link for Parenthood, the unconference. Um, tickets start from just 50 dirhams. Um, all those proceeds are going to charity. We're going to be there on Thursday and we've pulled together a brilliant list of experts we're going to be talking about how to parent when you've got caregivers nannies in your home a very unique setup I think um, globally something I definitely want some advice on we're going to be talking about parenting after divorce and looking after you as a parent Rania for anyone who wants to um, investigate some of the work you do go on courses what's the best way of contacting you Uh, Instagram (laughs) it's always Instagram (laughs) All right, thank you so so much thank you really do appreciate your time Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It's Movember, fellas. This month encourages men to focus on mental health, um, prostate cancer, testicular cancer. Across the world, men are dying six years earlier than women, and largely for preventable reasons. And prostate cancer is the most common cancer amongst men, but often treatable if caught early. But with no early symptoms, it's crucial that men and their loved ones know and understand the risks. To join us and explain a little bit more is consultant neurological surgeon and associate chief medical officer at King's College Hospital, Dr. Rizwan Hamid. Dr. Rizwan, how are you? Happy Movember. Uh, Helen, thank you very much. Uh, happy Movember to you also. <laughs> Thanks for having me, I'm sure. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, and I think it's so important to be shining a spotlight on prostate cancer. Um, when I say common, how common are we talking, sir? Uh, I think for men, from men's point of view, it is the second most common cancer after the non-melanoma skin cancers. So we're talking in men's is very, very common cancer. And what what demographic are we talking about? What age group needs to be particularly tuned in to prostate in particular? Uh, although, like any cancer, it can strike at any age, but generally the risk of prostate cancer increases as one grows older than 50 years of age. Mm-hmm. Uh, race-wise, black people, for reasons unknown, are at an increased risk of prostate cancer. But I think most importantly, there is some... Uh, a tendency of family history and having a prostate cancer for the father or a sibling doubles the risk of having prostate cancer uh, in an individual. Dr. Rizman, um, we've had a number of messages on this and we'll, we'll be happy to take them anonymously, of course, if you prefer during the course of the show, 4001. Um, one um, that came in earlier, which I think is really interesting, Damien saying, is it true that if you've got a family history um, of genes that increase the risk of breast cancer, so BRCA1 or 2, then your risk of prostate is higher? My granny and aunt passed away from breast cancer. My mum only told me about the link recently. I'm 41. Thank you. Have you heard of that link? Uh, yes, there is. It's part of that family history. So if somebody has got a breast cancer back, a one or two in the family, then the risk of prostate cancer may be higher. Let's talk signs and symptoms. What are some of the red flags, the questions you might be asking um, when someone's coming into clinic or before they even reach your door? Yeah, yeah, and I think this is very important. Prostate cancer is one of those cancers where generally there are no early signs or symptoms. 
So unlike other cancers, you know, there's not a lump like in breast cancer or with bladder cancer, somebody can pee blood. That is generally not the case. Prostate cancer signs are generally in the advanced stages, but anybody who gets low, what we call it as lower urinary tract symptoms, i.e. increased desire to pass urine, decreased urinary flow, or especially if they got blood in the urine, but more importantly, blood in the semen or loss of weight or suddenly developing erectile dysfunction, those should be the red flag signs that one should actually contact the doctor or a urologist. Dr. Rizwan is with us this afternoon. Um, delighted to be kind of involving his expertise on a conversation much needed. Consultant neurological surgeon there at King's taking my questions and yours when it comes to the prostate. So if you do have any questions, any worries or want to share your experiences, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can be anonymous. We've had a message here from Dee saying blood in urine male, what to do? We're going to come to that next. And also what does treatment look like? We've had a number of messages asking about surgery, laser surgery. How can you retain sexual function as well. So Dr. Rizwan, we're keeping you with us here on Dubai I-103.8. It's Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We're talking men's health. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are marking the start of Movember. Um, discussing prostate cancer today with Dr. Rizwan Hamid, consultant neurological surgeon and associate chief medical officer at King's College Hospital. Dr. Rizwan, we've had a number of messages and I, I just want to say a huge thank you to Nadia who said, I just want to share this. My amazing dad got diagnosed with prostate cancer at 58. He only found out as he went to the doctors with a sore back and the doctor recommended a blood test. Because of the PSA levels, he had an MRI, then a biopsy, which revealed the cancer. He caught it early and is doing great. He's young for his age, still working, very active, and never would have known had he not gone to the doctor about his back. Comes back to your point earlier about the bit of a mystery around those early signs and symptoms. Have you heard cases such as Nadia's dad? And Nadia, I'm so glad he's doing well. Uh, uh, yes, and I'm glad uh, our dad was uh, diagnosed early. One of the signs of advanced prostate cancer is that if it goes out of the prostate cancer, it goes generally to the bones. Uh, and that is the first place. So uh, that is one of the signs. So if, if you're in 50s or 60s and suddenly start to have bone pain, uh, especially backache, then one should go and visit the doctor. But Helen, apart from that, I think we should encourage all men who are 50 plus to have a chat with their doctors about what we call that screening for prostate cancer. And as you know, generally men do not look after their health very well. So I think PSA, which Nadia's dad had, is just a simple blood test, which uh, can tell whether somebody has got an increased risk of prostate cancer. It's a screening marker, uh, which is known as prostate-specific antigen. And prostate, as we know, is a gland, walnut-shaped gland, which uh, uh, provides nourishment to the semen. So if the PSA is high, then one needs to be investigated further. Not all men, this, and this is very important to point out, who have got a raised PSA will have prostate cancer because it is prostate-specific and not cancer-specific. It's one of the markers we use to diagnose prostate cancer. Now, we had this discussion last month when we were discussing breast cancer, which was, you doctors see it all. You've done it all. You've examined it all. So put the embarrassment aside, gentlemen. It is absolutely worth it for that peace of mind, your health, and for that of your families as well. And let's talk about treatment then, Dr. Rizwan. Can you explain um, once a diagnosis has been reached? Um, I'm yes. sure it will, will depend on stage and severity, but can you outline some of the treatments that are available here in the UAE? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was just about to start by saying that prostate cancer, if I might say, is one of the success stories that if it is caught early, we've got the breadth of treatment actually starting from what sometimes we call it as watchful waiting that the cancer is diagnosed, but it is the grade and stage is so early that doesn't require any active treatment, but active surveillance going on to the surgery. And in between, one can have a very localized cancer and a localized treatment, something known as HIFU, which is high-intensity focal ultrasound scan or cryotherapy can be done. Or one can have radiotherapy, which is the uh, radiotherapy to the whole gland, going on to the surgery where the whole gland is removed. And nowadays, it's widely available in UAE also. We do it robotically. So small, like laparoscopy, small mm -hmm. ports are put in and the prostate is removed so that not only all the cancer is removed, but two of the most, uh, shall I say, uh, 
bothersome complications of prostate cancer treatment, which mm-hmm. is incontinence and erectile dysfunction, the incidence of that is much, much less with the robotic surgery. Doctor, I've, I've read that, you know, as you say, that kind of laser surgery and those minimal invasive um, surgeries can allow men to continue with their lives regarding, well, no incontinence, um, retaining sexual function. And this is one of the kind of biggest focuses on in cancers at the minute, the, the prostate. And the first therapeutic cancer vaccine was approved, I think, about a decade ago, and it targeted prostate tumours. Have there been any significant, you know, progresses in this area? In, in the vaccine, not an established one which will t- specifically target prostate cancer. We are not there yet. The trials are ongoing, but we haven't got anything, a vaccine, which can uh, prevent prostate cancer. So your message... To reiterate for the for the people at the back is once you get to a certain age, uh, 50 or as you mentioned earlier, those risk factors to do with family history, it is a check. It is a blood screening, maybe an examination, getting that peace of mind. Um, and I think that's really important just to kind of demystify a little bit about about what you do and some of the signs and symptoms we've already covered. We've had a message here from Dee saying blood in urine, male, what to do? What would you advise as a consultant urologist, doctor, as one? Yeah. We call it as hematuria, like blood in urine. If it is painless, then it requires, we call it as a hematuria screen. So you need to see your urologist as soon as possible. And he'll do four things. Send the urine for culture to rule out any infection and the urine for cytology to rule out any abnormal cells. In the first instance, you'll have an ultrasound scan just to check that the kidneys are fine and there are no stones. And something known as a flexible cystoscopy, like the colonoscopy, a telescopic camera is inserted from the water pipe into the bladder to have a look inside. And with these four basic tests, we pretty much uh, will find out if there's anything sinister going on. And to ask what might be a silly question, Dr. Rizon, do you need to go to a urologist direct or could you go to your family doctor for a referral? Does it make any difference? Uh, I think it doesn't make any difference, but uh, in UAE, we are very lucky to have a direct access to the urologist. So I think blood in the urine, especially if it is painless, especially in a male, I think a, a visit to the urologist directly would be appropriate. If it's in a female where there's a bit of burning and dysuria, that generally is linked uh, to the uh, urinary tract infection, then one can visit the family physician first who will run the basic test and if need be refer to a urologist. Dr. Rizan, thank you so, so much for raising awareness around this topic. A very, very important time of year for men, as we said, in marking Movember. This month encourages you to look at mental health, suicide prevention, testicular cancer. And today we're talking about prostate. We will be visiting some more men's health topics, not just this month, but all the way through the year. And in the meantime, if you do want to have a conversation with Dr. Rizwan, you can find him at King's College Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Happy Movember again. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for all the advice. Consultant urologist surgeon there and associate chief medical officer healthy habits on afternoons with helen farmer being in a happy marriage helps heart attack patients make a speedy recovery research has suggests Uh, scientists at yale university have found that having a supportive and loving wife or husband dramatically cuts the risk of being readmitted to hospital or suffering chest pain they looked at around 1500 married adults with an average age of 47 who were treated for a heart attack across the united states now the participants had the state of their marriages evaluated using a questionnaire called the stockholm marital stress scale this asked whether they had a satisfactory intimate life, were experiencing any serious relationship problems, if their spouse is their closest confidant. The patients were divided into three groups based on how happy, loving and stress-free their marriages were. Their health and recovery were really closely monitored by doctors um, about a year after their heart attack. So overall, the patients with the unhappiest marriages were 67% more likely to report chest pains than those who had mild or no marital stress. So what does a happy, healthy relationship look like to you? And how can you future-proof your relationship? I'd love to get your take on this. What does a happy, healthy relationship look like in your life or in your ideal? Let us know on 4001. To help us unpack this and talk about future-proofing that relationship is Dr. Thry, a clinical psychologist from the Human Relations um, Institute and Clinic. How are you, Dr. T? I'm well, Helen. How are you? I'm really well. Really well, thank you. It's actually, talking about happy, healthy relationships, it's my eight-year wedding anniversary and it was reminded by Facebook memories. (laughs) Congratulations. Happy anniversary. (gasps) Thank you very much. We have no plans. (laughs) 
putting that aside, um, what do you think a happy, healthy relationship looks like? Can you give us some very kind of tangible, real life examples? Well, I would say first and foremost, at the core of any healthy relationship and therefore healthy, uh, happy relationship is going to be respect. And that kind of really manifests in many different ways, which basically has to do with how you communicate to each other, how you discuss your needs, your wants, how you uh, resolve conflict, and also how you're able to engage with with each other and develop some form of future uh, goals, future plans together, and really validate each other and be there for each other. So Mm -hmm. at the core of any healthy relationship, respect is going to be the big umbrella. And then it's just going to manifest into all of the different behaviours within that relationship. I love that answer. Um, I'm going to read out some of that we've had through social media and on the text line as well. So we've had um, trust, love, fun, trust, communication, working as a team, learning the love languages. You know I love the love languages. Being honest with oneself first and with your spouse open, honest communication and day, a date, days and nights. Compromise, says Trish. Open communication, honesty, making time for each other. Um, you see her saying on the text line, her well-being is greater than my well-being and vice versa. Everything flows from that. And Kira saying, I think equality, trust and respect are givens in a good relationship. No need for policing each other's actions. No jokey put downs or bad mouthing. No one on a pedestal and no one feeling taken for granted. I can see you nodding along to those. I just got goosebumps from that, Kira. Thank you. So let us know what a healthy, happy relationship looks like in your life or what you would like it to be. And what are some of the qualities, Dr. T, that successful couples might exhibit or share? Well, I mean, one of the things is to kind of develop a deeper understanding and deeper admiration for each other. Mm -hmm. So obviously you want to be able to respect the partner that you're with and feel proud of them. Because if you're walking around kind of embarrassed of the person that you're with, this could be very detrimental to a healthy relationship. Um, And so having that kind of fondness, that kind of admiration for them is extremely important because it helps not only foster the plan that you have for each other, but Also, it prevents something like contempt from coming up later on. And we know Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which are contempt. Now, you you love the Gottmans. I love the Gottmans. For anyone who's not familiar with with the Gottmans, can you explain who they are? And yes, unpack a little bit about their dreaded Four Horsemen. Yeah. So basically, both of the Gottmans, uh, they're a married couple. And so they've done copious amounts of research on uh, couples and they were actually able to almost predict uh, the percentage or the prevalence of divorce by 80% by developing what they called the four horsemen of the apocalypse of a relationship. And those four horsemen are contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And so they said that if there is contempt in the relationship, they can pretty much predict that the relationship is going to end miserably to about 80%. Oof, oof. Can I ask you to unpack those four horsemen a little bit more, maybe with some examples? I don't want to role play with you, Dr. T, but I will if it's <laughs> necessary. Um, just so we can understand what that might look like in a relationship or in a home, a partnership. Of course. So um, defensiveness is basically not taking accountability or responsibility for what you did and what your behavior was and how that affected your partner. Uh, That one's very important. So it's kind of like if somebody approaches you and says, you know, I I feel quite sad about how you spoke to me in front of our friends last night. And then if the person says, oh, you know, it's you're the one who actually did this. And that's why I behaved like that. That's defensiveness rather than taking ownership and accountability for what they've done. the stonewalling is basically the silent treatment. So it's any time that a person is is uh, trying to resolve a conflict, whenever the person completely shuts down, walks away and doesn't revisit the topic itself, just kind of like undermines it, lets it go um, and just keeps it within themselves. It builds resentment and it fosters a lot of negativity. Mm-hmm. Criticism is is what we know is is basically bad mouthing your partner in, in terms of, you know, um, uh, saying mean things to them, you know, pointing out all of their like their weaknesses, sometimes even using their weaknesses against them. And contempt is essentially just having this massive anger and resentment and, and frustration towards a person. Um, actually, Jordan Peterson said something really interesting that when you start to roll your eyes at your partner or when your partner speaks, it's 
almost the equivalent of you kind of, you know, cause when you roll your eyes, you kind of go from one, one place to another. It's like, you're picking them up from one place and kind of throwing them to another. Oh, and that's horrible. really that level of kind of disgust mm-hmm. that you have towards your partner. And, and that's what the Gottmans had mentioned in terms of, uh, almost predicting a sense of di- divorce or, or breakdown in the relationship due to that level of, um, you know, contempt and disgust to the to the partner that you're with. Very hard to come back when you're in that place as a couple, I am sure. Um, We're taking your messages on this as well. Let me know what a happy relationship looks like to you. G's saying, how funny, Helen, it's mine and my partner's anniversary today. And we both forgot we're going to go out tomorrow night. What keeps us together? Talking, compromise, time out with friends, trust, laughing and jointly forgetting our anniversary. Um, We're going to be talking next about what studies demonstrate and ways to future proof your relationship. So whether it is a new relationship that you want to make sure you're starting out on the right foot or perhaps you're about to come into some change, maybe kids are about to leave home, maybe there's a change of work or finances. I'm going to be talking about how you can stay on the same page and want to be in the same place. Dr. Thry with us this afternoon, clinical psychologist. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking happy relationships, how to have one, how to keep one, how to future-proof yours. Dr. Thry, clinical psychologist, is with us, joining us um, from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. We have got a lot of messages on this, Thry. It's really lovely to hear people talking about the happy relationships they are in and, and what it means to them. But we've also had some concerned messages, too. Sai so saying, um, I think my relationship with my wife is healthy because we feel like a partnership, a team. Even if we're disagreeing, we're for each other not against we talk we laugh we respect we're a team and tackle everything as such we don't allow resentment or and anger to simmer or build so i thank you for sharing that 4001 if you've got any questions um any uh concerns as well you're just talking earlier about um gottman's four horsemen an anonymous message here saying if the relationship has all four aspects that are mentioned right now is there a way to come back or it's surely divorce. Dr. Thry, the Gottmans, as you say, predict to a pretty high degree, around 80-odd percent, but it doesn't necessarily mean you are heading for the divorce courts, especially if both people in that partnership don't want that to be the case, surely. Well, I mean, I think what you just said, Helen, is so important. The fact that the person doesn't want it to be there, but not, for instance, for the children. If they want to stay in the relationship for each other because they still believe that there's something that's there, then definitely, even if a person is experiencing these four, there could be something that could be done. However, um, there's a lot of research that shows that when there's consistent use of these four horsemen, that the likelihood of the relationship um, continuing in a healthy manner is extremely low. So it's not impossible. It just would require a lot of work on both sides. Let's go to the text line. Um, A message here saying, Good afternoon. Ever since our child was born, our marriage relationship has changed forever. Conflicting parenting styles, changed expectations, extremely busy work schedules and exhaustion just gives us less and less time together. We go on functioning together for the family, but we really miss our fun, relaxed, pre-parent life. Any advice on what we can do to bring back the magic? What would be very practical and feasible things we could do to change our future? Anonymous message there, Thraya. What would you, I can see you smiling. I know you've got ideas on this and you do a lot of marriage counselling. I know you're very busy with it right now. So if a couple were to come to you with what I suspect is a very common situation, you know, life getting in the way and perhaps overshadowing the love that was there to begin with, where, how do you get back to, back to what you know? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is play. And play is so important in a relationship. It's one of the things that usually attracts us the most about the partner that we choose. And this is usually in love marriages. So bringing play back into the relationship can really strengthen the the intimacy of the relationship itself. Because, you know, and there's a great book called um, And Baby Makes Three. Of course, I'm going to forget who it's by. But that book is amazing at showing what happens to a relationship after a baby is born. And I think not only recognizing that these changes are going to happen, especially if you haven't really had the conversation of parenting styles beforehand, but when that happens, you have to remind yourself why you got together in the first place. And that can really occur in the best way through play, which is enjoy each other. A lot of the times when, when, you know, we're, we're doing couples counseling, People end up talking to each other about so many, you know, deep issues, you know, thoughtful issues. And I'm like, stop it. Just 
stop. Mm-hmm. Take a second and just enjoy each other. Do dumb things together. <laughs> Do things that you suck at. Laugh together. The amount of of intimacy and closeness and connectedness that you can experience with your partner when you're just dumb together and tapping into your inner child it's one of the most powerful ways to kind of get yourselves back together and actually you know Helen there's a there's a picture that I will never forget in my life I saw this massive art structure that was created actually I think it was for some festival they had in the states but it's of two adults sitting back to back. And so they're not facing each other, but on the inside of the structure and between on the inside of each partner, there's these children that are kind of touching hands. Mm -hmm. And and it's basically that's, that's what happens in a relationship when the adults are angry at each other, the children within us want to connect to each other. And that's just such a powerful image. When you think about when we fight with each other, that ego, that pride kicks in. And so we forget that the inner child within us is trying to connect to that other partner, but we're just not doing it in the right way. So play allows that inner child to come out and that inner child to reconnect to the inner child that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And prioritizing that play, you know, we're all, you know, as this messenger says, you know, busy work schedules, family commitments, feeling guilty about not being with the kids enough, you know, all of that. But I think you know, we're seeing a big rise in divorces in later life for a couple of reasons. One, we're living longer and you might go, mm-hmm. oh, I've actually got another 40 years with this person. <laughs> no, thank you. Also, when, when kids leave, you know, then you're left with that person that you chose and you might have forgotten why you chose them. So that nurturing that relationship and really prioritizing you as a couple. I'm, I, we've spoken this on the show before, Thraya, about the alphabet dating that me and my husband did a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, which... I mean, sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was it was so, so bad. But we decided that we were going to try and step away from Netflix and the cinema and, you know, eating on the sofa next to each other and try and work our way through the alphabet doing different activities. So we did, oh my goodness, we did zip lining, fragrance making. We, uh, oh my goodness, went hot air ballooning. There was lockdown. So Jay was for jigsaw. That was definitely a low point. <laughs> but, you know, being able to kind of make these plans and, and have it in the diary did make a big difference. We keep on talking about doing it again. And But you're right, being silly together because that's... We need, we're there for each other for fun and for support and love and creating new memories as well, not just relying on the ones that uh, we had at the beginning. We're going to talk next about future-proofing your relationship. We've got a message about um, divorcing. So what's the, what are the main things I need to keep in mind when informing my two girls about my divorce with their mum? We're actually going to be speaking on Thursday to an expert in this area who's going to be joining us at the Parenting Unconference. So I will ask her that um, at that time, if you don't mind, and I'll make sure you get a copy of the podcast to Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Recent research suggests that being in a happy marriage actually helps heart attack patients make a speedy recovery. So what does a healthy, happy relationship look like to you? And how can you future-proof your relationship? Dr. Thuraya joining us, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Also does an awful lot of marriage counselling. We're talking about what that relationship actually can look like and it's lovely to hear your messages but also to take any questions or concerns you might have about the marriage or relationship you find yourself in. You can get in touch anonymously if you prefer, of course, on 4001. You've got your ARN Play app and the WhatsApp too. Um, uh, Previous message from a listener um, just saying thank you so much for the response and advice. Somehow we just forget what brought us together. And I think that is so true of so, so many couples, Thraya. Um Going to the text line, no name saying, oh man, this is depressing. My husband is totally disengaged from family life. It's like he can't bear to be at home with us and refuses to talk about it. I just don't know what to do. This comes back to what we were talking earlier about both people wanting to have the same goals, I guess, as a fee, as a team, as a family. What would you advise this listener about? Sounds like stonewalling, to be honest, what you were just highlighting earlier. Right. And, you know, usually when there is a lot of stonewalling in the relationship, you you would the best thing to do, actually, in that sense is to try to speak to that person again, to try to have that conversation calmly when there's no, you know, kids around, when it's kind of 
know, downtime, try to have a conversation, say, you know, I'm trying to engage with you. I'm finding it difficult because you're not very, you're not being very responsive. Is there any way that we can have a conversation or do you think maybe we need to have someone help us have a conversation? Is there something that we can do together to make this relationship a lot more, uh, you know, conducive to the both of us? Because it doesn't seem like you're very much engaged. And at the same time, I don't like seeing you so disengaged with the relationship as well. So mm-hmm. it's not attacking as much as it is, you know, stating the situation in somewhat of a neutral manner so that the person also doesn't feel attacked. And at the same time, still trying to, to broach the topic of, you know, we need to figure this out now. Hopefully they will be a bit responsive to that. If not, you know, you need to kind of start focusing on yourself, working on what you can do to uh, navigate the situation in the best way possible for yourself as well. Thank you, Thraya. Let's talk future proofing. And I have to say, it's been really lovely to hear about um, some of the really happy relationships so many of our listeners find themselves in and long may it continue. And I just want to, before we get onto your tips, I just want to say thank you to something that you said probably years ago on this very show um, that I try and remember (laughs) as often as possible about turning towards your partner. And this is something that the Gottmans, of course, have talked about. Dr. John Gottman conducted a study with newlyweds and then followed up with them six years later. Many of the couples remained together, of course, many divorced, and the couples that stay married were much better at one thing, turning towards instead of away. Um, so okay. this, it's, it, sounds, it sounds really silly, but a couple that stayed married turned towards each other six, 86% of the time. What do we mean by that? It means in my household, me putting down my phone or trying to explain to a child that, you know, daddy wants to talk to me and can, can mm-hmm. you give me a minute? And it's so much easier said than done because sometimes it can be a physical turning towards someone, making eye contact, being face to face. Why is that such a significant thing in a relationship, Thraya? Well, essentially, that's how we connect to each other. It's how we feel a sense of belonging. It's also how we can validate the relationship without even really saying much. Being present with your partner is by far one of the most important and significant factors within the relationship. If you are, if your partner is talking to you, but you're on your phone, it's clear that you're not really interested and they're going to feel that. If you're sitting with your partner and you guys are both watching TV, but nobody's talking to each other, which is great because I don't condone watching and talking to each other when you're watching a movie because movies must be silent. However, when you are watching the movie, take some time afterwards and maybe discuss what you felt rather than just being like, okay, good night. And just like walking away. It's about having an experience and, and feeling that sense of connection to each other. So when we talk about turning towards each other, it's really about not moving away from each other as well. And that sense of connection is key because it's kind of actually I I heard this on a podcast once and it was genius it's it's basically this idea of not auditing the relationship but rather investing in the relationship and when you hear that you're just like wait what does that what does that mean well essentially what it means is that what you don't want to do is be like oh well I did this and he did that or she did this and he did that you you know like you're auditing the relationship rather rather than just looking at okay what am I not doing Mm -hmm. what am I doing what can I contribute? What can I do differently? So instead of finger pointing and blaming the other individual, it's more about focusing on what you need to change. And if every person in the relationship focuses more on what they need to change rather than what their partner needs to change, then essentially what happens is that you start changing, hopefully, towards each other rather than away from each other. Thank you for, for making, making it make sense. But it is something I, I'm working really, really hard on. Just if Nick Farmer's listening this afternoon. Um, what else can people be doing to future-proof that relationship, regardless perhaps of what stage you are? You could be newlyweds or you could be mm-hmm. 50 years down the track. Well, I think one of the things that you need to do up front, if you are in the beginning of your relationship, is, is set boundaries. And you know me, Helen, I talk about boundaries and like it's going out of style. But the reality is, is that boundaries are extremely important. Communicating your needs so that your partner knows and, and seeing if your partner is respectful towards your needs is essentially important before you get married. Because if you start to see that your partner is not respecting your boundaries, then that's a very big red flag. Right. Another part is, like I said, being honest and taking responsibility for what you can control and what you can contribute within the relationship. Invest instead of audit. This is really, really important. 
learning how to navigate and move away from the four horsemen of the apocalypse, learning how to avoid stonewalling and defensiveness and criticism and contempt, but also making sure that the relationship, ha- like you make time for the relationship. A lot of people will say things to me like, I don't have time. There's just so much to do. And I say, that's not true because if you can touch your phone, if you can open Instagram, if you can open Facebook, you have time for the relationship. So we make time for what we prioritize. And this is extreme, an extremely important statement. We make time for things that we prioritize. So if we prioritize our relationship, at least especially at some points in our life, then it's important for us to make time for it, even in a busy schedule, Mm -hmm. even if we're exhausted, even if we're not in the mood. It's about prioritizing the, 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 sense of belonging and the sense of connectedness within the relationship. And I think what that really highlights is something that you don't see at the end of all the rom-coms. You know, once the, once the ring is on the finger and the white mm. dress is on, you, all your problems aren't solved by getting married or finding love. You, know, you have more problems. You, you, have, you, have more, you have different problems for sure. And you've got to keep working at it. I think that there's this big myth around, oh, well, you know, things aren't perfect. This means this isn't, a, this isn't worth fighting for. Absolutely. You've just got to keep working. Um, Quick message going. Can you remind us of the four horsemen? This is Gottman's four horsemen. Would you mind just quickly highlighting those? I know there's an awful lot of online about this as well, if you want to do any further reading. But Thraya, in a nutshell. Sure. So uh, criticism, uh, contempt, defensiveness and stonewalling. So those are the four horsemen. And actually, they even have what they call a gentle startup. So instead of engaging in those, there's a different way for you to actually react or actually respond to your partner. Throughout, I just want to end with this message. This is from SD saying, I was in a cold and um, abusive marriage for 12 years. My mum was and is extremely cold growing up. I've been with my boyfriend 18 months now. The other day it hit me what healthy felt like. It sounds stupid, but it made me cry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry. He was asleep and I just lay there with a completely empty and happy mind. No worries of life were in my head, even though I have many. I felt safe and loved. I felt I had no obligations to be with him. I could go if I wanted. I was free. I choose him because of the feelings he gives me of love, freedom and safety. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I'm so happy you found that. Um, Thraya, thank you so much. And if anyone is feeling concerned about their relationship or indeed they're in a good relationship, but maybe just want to check in with each other and continue to be on a on a happy path, um, you are there at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Um, you do offer marriage counselling. And I really do appreciate your insights. Some brilliant advice I think all of us can, can learn from and maybe put into practice tonight. Put the phones down. Dr. Thraya, always Thanks, a pleasure. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.